one of the paradoxes of our practice. Anushka referred to paradoxes a couple of times uh, the other day, but one of the paradoxes of many paradoxes is that really the silence says it all. So it's very, um, it's kind of paradoxical to ever be given a, a Dhamma talk in that way. Just these uh, uh, meager fingers pointing to the moon, never to get confused between the finger pointing and the moon itself. As uh, Andrea mentioned, the first night, my root teacher, of immediate root teacher, is Ajahn Sumedho, the Venerable Sumedho. And his teacher was the Venerable Ajahn Chah, who was a, 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 a famous uh, a, a Thai meditation master from last century who uh, lived in a very modest way and never did anything higher, stronger. Thank you. So I think we need a Beth, we need a little more volume if that's possible. Thanks you for doing that. <laughs> so uh, Ajahn Chah uh, uh, was in a, a lesser developed, lesser affluent uh, uh, part of Thailand and did no, still more? Okay, how's that? Good, thank you. And he, um, he, uh, became such a powerful teacher that when he died, half a million people came uh, at, at, at the, his passing. Half a million people. That's how he was received. And this is some of Ajahn Chah's wisdom. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So let that echo in our minds, two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering, which is ordinary life, activity so often, when there is not wisdom and compassion in how we maneuver in ordinary life. And as we'll see when we look at mind states tonight, ordinary mind states have this same uh, pattern of leading to suffering. Two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering. And the second kind, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. He goes on. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. The choice laid out for us. No pampering it, no like... Sweeten it up a little. The stark, the way it is. The way it is. This is one way that we can understand dharma. The meaning of dharma is the way it is. We could understand mindfulness is that capacity that we're developing to know how it is. To know the way it is. So this is what we are involved in here in our retreat this month. There's two months for many of you. And during this period of practice, during this, this immediate period of this week and some of next week, we are doing this through the contemplation of the Satipatthana. 
as we have said night after night here. And it is the direct path. The direct path. This is why we contemplate it. This is why we are using it as a structure. The Buddha describes it as the direct path to liberation, to the end of lamentation, of suffering, and all that uh, Andrea described uh, the, the night she was taking us through the structure of the Satipatthana, introducing it to us. And we wish to remember this, that this is what we're involved in. This is our intention moment to moment. We have the aspiration of, in some way, finding a relief from suffering, finding more meaning in our lives, finding more purpose in our lives, however you might say it to yourself, having an understanding. For me, it it was not suffering, per se, that brought me to the Dhamma. It was wanting to know the truth of things. That was what brought me here. That was my Dharma gate. I wanted to understand. I had actually worked out an accommodation with suffering. I had the uh, mixed blessing of having uh, uh, from early childhood a lot of opportunity to practice with suffering. So I'd kind of worked out my accommodation in that way with suffering. But I really wanted to uh, understand what is this? What is this? How can I relate to it that feels meaningful, that feels purposeful, that has some larger relationship than just a, a sense desire? And so that brought me here to this and to this direct path that we find in the Satipatthana. So tonight I will be introducing the third Satipatthana, the Satipatthana of mind states, contemplation of mind it's called. But I would like to do that by placing it in the context of uh, all the wonderful teachings that we've received in these previous evenings around body and around Vedana. Because we can um, maybe develop a more subtle understanding of what we have learned and we can apply those more subtle understandings over the coming days as we work with mind states. Because mind states are pretty difficult to work with at times. So it's, it's not a small shift from moving from the body to mind states. And I want to just take us through um, a reflection of what we, we, what we have experienced, what we have directly experienced, although we may not have noticed that we're experiencing it, and we may not have uh, yet uh, harvested the crops from our good hours of planting them and watering them over these first days of our time together. One of the awe-inspiring things about the Buddha's teaching is how brilliantly structured it is. The architecture of the Buddha's teaching is breathtaking. I've been doing this for 37 years, I guess 36 years, and I am in as much awe as when I first started to realize how brilliantly this is put together. And it took me a while, some years, to really see the blueprint that the Buddha had laid out 
and how it's so woven together and fits so well together. And it is revealed in the Satipatthana teachings as elsewhere in the suttas. So, I wonder why the Buddha started with the body. He could have started anywhere. He first presents that there that there is this there is this direct path for the end. And then he starts with the body as the first satipatthana. Wonder why that is. If we were doing this, would we have done that? Would we have had that wisdom? I would suggest from my own experience and from my experience working with yogis for uh, almost 20 years now, that, first of all, that it was absolutely brilliant that he started with the body. And that brilliance has obvious layers and more subtle layers uh, to be known. One of the reasons, one of the great advantages is that the body is an accessible object of meditation. Whether it's the parts of the body, whether it's the breath, whether it's movement, almost all of us can at least some of the time notice the body. You know, there's times when we're so out in space or so in in an uproar emotionally or something that we, we don't notice the body, we can't access the body. But most of the time, for most of us, we can actually access the body. That's no small thing, because it's not so true of mind states. All the emotions around mind states can sometimes be very hard to like, what is this? We don't know. We can't quite, we're just moving around too much. We can't even stay still. We can't stay long enough to know. We can't even arrive, to use our chair analogy. We can't arrive. We're too, it's too charged. So he starts someplace that's really accessible and particularly accessible in his time. Because in his time, as best we know from everything that, that scholars can tell, there was not such an emphasis on the individual personality and all of their mind states as we in our modern time with our selfing, our great self-referencing, uh, have. And so much um, and, and his time, most of the people that he would be teaching to were much more body-centered, uh, sense-centered sense lives. That was, they were more organized that way, just as they were organized around family units and tribal units, and we were much more individually organized. So very accessible, this body. And because it's accessible, we are able to establish mindfulness of the experience. It's accessible long enough that we can stay with it long enough to tune in, to find things, to find the breath and stay with the breath, to stay with the felt sense of the body, to find if the body is tense or not tense and relax it as we've done in so many meditations, to be able to cultivate on a more subtle level this relaxed attention that we have so emphasized. We can notice if our attention is tight or loose around the body, and we can relax attention. Are we pushing at the body? Are we pulling at the body's experience? Are we just relaxing with the body?
Another great advantage is right away we verify that, yeah, this is a direct experience. I'm not being asked to believe anything here. I'm not being asked to wait around and something's going to be revealed later on. This is immediate. This is direct. I can see it for myself. E. Pasako, come see for yourself, the Buddha said. This is the invitation that we are responding to in practicing satipatthana, these four satipatthanas. And so we can immediately verify for ourselves. But we don't necessarily get it. We don't necessarily go, oh yeah, it's true, I am verifying this for myself. And as we'll see as we look at this going forward, that there's other things that we don't necessarily notice. Even though they're true, but we're not registering them in the same way. So this is one of these subtle things. It is truly the direct path. I can have faith in my own practice because it's being verified in just this awareness of the body. That's very helpful when we're caught in doubting mind or restless mind or aversion. Oh, yeah. I can direct path. I have this direct experience of these difficulties, the hindrances that we were taken through this morning so beautifully. That Oh, yes, I can at least, I may be struggling with it, I may be caught in it, but I can directly know it because I can feel it. So this, this subtlety of recognizing what's true, knowing the way it is. This, the Dhamma, knowing the way it is. It's like this. And then another reason that the body uh, is such a brilliant place to start is that it, it is possible to feel things in the body so that we learn to reference the body through the rest of the Satipatthanas. We have a base that we can always go back to and reference. And in doing that, we do have a kind of... Um, um, orientation. If nothing else, we can reorient back to the body, to the breath, to body feelings, to hearing, whatever uh, means that you use in your practice. We, we know a way back. And that can give us a kind of confidence, which also leads to this kind of faith in our practice, because we get into some sticky wickets, some uh, eddies in our practice. No doubt you've noticed this already. And so we can, we can use the earth element in that way. Helps to know, helps to have had this reflection, at least it's been that way for me. And then in terms of some of the more subtle uh, ways that, that we learn through practicing with the body, and again, uh, this has come from my own practice and from the way I've worked with people at various retreats through the years. If we just take the earth element alone, the earth element uh, can give us a sense of being present. When we notice the earth element, it brings us into the present moment. There's something solid, accessible. That's something that I would call here. There's a hereness, that feeling of hereness. I see some nodding heads out there. The earth element can bring us into that sense, the felt sense of hereness. It also if we look at the earth element closely, if we really make it our object, there is a kind of stillness, not perfect stillness, but there's a kind of stillness to the earth element that maybe in one of the meditations that we can do together and explore that more. 
We also learn about ground through the earth element. Just as the earth element naturally rests on earth, we don't have to make it rest on earth, we don't have to hold it resting on earth, it's a natural relationship. There is ground that we can know directly for ourselves. This leads us, if we are interested in this, to a, a many um, subtle feelings, I'll just call them that, subtle, subtle experiences of what is ground, what is the nature of ground, how can we find ground no matter where we are. This, this principle, the archetype of groundedness, what is that? What is this relationship in the mind-heart to ground? This whole principle of ground. And there is a kind of a, a sense of aliveness that can start there in the earth element. The same in the wind element. The wind element, because of its immediacy, of its right here, if you're not right here with it, it's gone. The earth element it's kind of stays around more because that's tendency towards stillness. But the wind element, if you don't catch the beginning of the inhale, it's gone. It's not staying around. There's not a permanent beginning of the inhale. There's no moment of duration in the inhale that, you can, that stays around either. And so the nowness, now, here, now. Here, now. So these principles of being present are manifest in these two elements, if we notice. And whether we notice or not, because we are, we are practicing the way we are, it's being subtly imbued. There's an osmosis. We are entraining the mind. We're entraining what we notice. It's part of the slowing down and everything. We are empowering ourselves even if we don't notice, because the Dharma is doing us when we show up to practice. Such a inspiring thing to me that the Dharma does us if we show up. Don't have to show up perfectly, don't have to show up in some improved version of ourselves, but just as we are. So just as there's a nowness in the air element, in the wind element, I prefer calling it the wind element because that captures more this sense of movement. So there is movement in the wind element. There's no doubt of that. So we're really understanding movement. And through movement, we learn to see movement in mind states also. We learn to see movement in Anicca, that it's all moving. We, can, we know the felt sense of movement because it's come through the body. Our body, is through focusing these things on the body, the awareness, our mindfulness, starts to be an embodied mindfulness. And then that, that, that what's felt through that embodied mindfulness is then utilized in the, the working with the, the uh, Vedna, the, the, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and the mind states, and then later on in the fourth Satipatthana. We also learn in the wind element, whether we're aware of it or not, we're starting to learn this um, further access to ground. We learn that we can stay grounded in our attention on the breath. That's of real skill. It's not that the breath is necessarily so interesting. It's that we learn that the, that the mind, through this relaxed attention, 
that can soften into the experience will stay grounded in breath. It will stay with breath. Breath is ever-changing. And yet we're staying with the breath. So we start to, to experience, again, knowingly or not, a greater capacity of staying grounded in our experience. Again, very useful as we go further into ever more subtle levels of the Satipatthana. Because we encounter body uh, uh, reactivity, we also uh, can have a, um, a, a, the first sense of renunciation through the body. So we're getting grounded in the body where we will learn renunciation. And as we've all seen, renunciation is a key part of practice. And Anushka referred to that the other night. So this idea of this embodied awareness or this embodied mindfulness, this embodied sati, there is one analogy that's used is that the, it's of the wheel and at the center of the, of the wheel, at the axle of the wheel, is this, this mindfulness. And all these spokes come out through the satipatthana and then the realm of the wheel is this liberated mind heart that can uh, roll through life the way we now, I guess, in popular vernacular use, she rolls like this, that's the way he rolls, that we can, we can move through life without grasping, clinging. That this, oh, this is possible. And then the Buddha and his wisdom points us to Vedna, this arising of a moment of pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, as a flavoring is the word I use. It flavors the moment. So it's, it's, it characterizes this moment, this pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor other pleasant. So why did he put it here, do you think? He could have started with Vedna. Then we would have known Vedna when we got to the body. But he didn't do that. Why not? Or then why didn't he, why didn't he put it after the mind states? Why did he put it in between, in between the, uh, the body contemplations and the mind contemplations? One reason might be is that if we haven't learned to be with the body, we don't have a base for finding the Vedana. So first learning to place our attention, to keep our attention, to arrive in the body, allows us to be somewhere where it's pretty easy to notice then the, the, that there's pleasant feelings in the body or unpleasant feelings or that we're just not noticing things about the body. Like right now, there's so many things we're not noticing about the body. But even right now, we could choose, oh, as I'm, as I'm here practicing listening, listening, I also wish to practice staying in the body. As we stay in the body, it is inevitable that we're going to notice pleasant and unpleasant. Can you imagine any way around that? Has there been anything in your experience in these days of practice that would lead you that, you, that you, at least at times you wouldn't notice? Now, if you're deeply absorbed, the body can go away. But in our ordinary mind states, 
did we not, whether we are noticing it or not, we are feeling the pleasant and unpleasant as they are uh, the flavorings of each moment as it's arising and passing. And so we see, oh, first you get us somewhere that where it's easily seen, and then we get to know this, this, this Vedna, this, this pleasant in this way. And then there's something else, a, a very uh, subtle but really appropriate to his time. He had practiced for a number of years renunciation of the body, renunciation of any pleasant. But here he's pointing out, notice the pleasant. He's not saying get rid of the pleasant. He's saying notice the pleasant. He's allowing, he's, he's uh, really reframing what, uh, the, 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 the practice of his time with this, this, this Vedna, this way. It was really quite radical in that way. And then uh, a reflection that uh, uh, I had the uh, great honor to, uh, to uh, participate as a, assisting the Venerable Nalia who wrote the, the, the book, the two wonderful Satipatthana books. He comes here every other year now and teaches an in-depth kind of study course on the Satipatthana. And he brought up this point that, uh, that I had never heard anybody bring up uh, so emphatically, which is that in the, in the Vedna, as, as was referenced last night, uh, by Nikki, this that in the Vedna there's two kinds of Vedna. There's there are pleasant and unpleasant and neutral that are quote worldly, often said of the flesh. I think of it being ordinary life, and then that which oriented towards ordinary life of 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 gaining pleasant and getting rid of the unpleasant, <laughs> that, that ordinary kind of, of noticing Vedna. And then the other kind that's associated as, with unworldly, with the renunciation, with the spiritual life, with, with this uh, movement towards being able to choose the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So there's, in, in that sense, there's six Vedness, the, the pleasant and unpleasant, neither not unpleasant that's worldly, and the three that's not worldly. And um, one of the interesting things about that is that he wants us to notice what's, what's, is it, what's this like. We just notice what our mind's doing. One of the ways this can come up is the, 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 the fantasies you know, how, how pleasant fantasies can be when we're practicing or planning or remembering, playing our favorite old movies in our head. And so we can ask ourselves, so, is this pleasant or unpleasant? Ah, oh, this is pretty pleasant. <laughs> I'm really sort of entertaining myself here. Ah, so is this worldly or unworldly? Oh, so this is, this is worldly. This is what I'm spending my time on retreat doing right now. We just see we just see. We don't have to like do something about it. We just see. And the Dharma will do us if we stay with what we're seeing. When we, when we 
look at the Vedna in the body, we start to see from an, this unworldly perspective, we start to see that there is no winning strategy where I'm going to get the body to be comfortable and it's always going to feel good. Again, Anishka made reference to this in her talk the other night. That it's, 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 It just doesn't work. We can't always have the body comfortable. We start to see the, the ever-changing nature of the, the Vedna in the body. So we're not even to the mind states yet. We just see, oh, it was pleasant, now it's unpleasant. Oh, now the attention's here, now the attention's there. It's itching now, it's a little restless here. Oh, now it's really quiet, oh, this is nice. Oh, I'm wanting, to, I'm wanting this to last, oh, that doesn't feel so good. Now, now I'm thinking about making it last. I'm missing the pleasantness of it because I'm trying to figure out how to make it last. We get to see all of this just in the body. Again, the brilliance of, of, this, of this teaching in this way. And, again, we may not notice it, but we all experience it. We get used to the body being uncomfortable. We become accustomed. We develop a kind of dispassion around the body's discomfort. Not indifference. That's a whole nother kittle of fish. Explore that later on in the, in the month. But we, we develop a level of dispassion. Now again, we've not gotten to the mind. We've not been working around with the mind at all, putting it through its paces. We learn to sit here with a level of discomfort. We learn, as Nikki said last night, that pleasant is just pleasant and unpleasant is just unpleasant. We're learning this directly. This is the direct experience of dispassion. Dispassion is renunciation. It is a letting go. It's a surrendering in this moment to the way it is. doesn't mean that even with our body, if oh, well, I'm hurting my knee, stand up. Change your position. Always this uh, uh, bringing our wisdom, our care, our standing for our values in this moment. But we learn a dispassion. We learn just because the body's restless, I don't have to squirm. And it will pass. We learn the truth of a Nietzsche. By direct experience, not by cognizing, about, not, by, not by logically, not by, I didn't mean to say cognizing, I meant to say conceptualizing it. So there's not a conceptualization happening here at all. We're really at this animal level. And yet we're learning all of these really skillful means. My perspective, the more we're aware of this, the more we have a reflection on it, the more deliberateness, the more intentionalness that we realize that we're employing here, the more empowered we become in our practice. We have more faith, more confidence, more momentum in that way. So, one other thing, if you will look at your sheet for a moment, and I, I had you pick up this sheet with some trepidation from some of my uh, teaching colleagues because we don't want to bring you into your thinking mind. But the, the, the reason that I felt this would be valuable for us is that we can get 
uh, we can be trying to grab hold of, well, now, what, were they talking about this or that or whatever? And we can't even remember what the four Satipatthanas are. You know, we get, because we're getting in yogi mind as we get more and more here and this. And so just to have a little reference of the body is the first Satipatthana, feeling second, mind third, and Dhamma's fourth. And then when we've mentioned various things, that you can, you can uh, have some reference if, if, the, if you get confused. This is not a paper to take home and study. This is just something if you get confused and need a little reference, and we're going to use it in a couple other ways in a moment. But just as, just as the uh, chant sheets are not for you to take home and to be contemplating, I've had a number of questions come up about, well, what does this mean in the chant? Does this mean this or that? I was thinking about it. It's, it's weird. The, the chant is for the direct experience also. And this is, this is helping us stay in the direct experience, not to pull us out. But one of the things that I wanted us to notice for a moment, and this is uh, not, not everybody points this out, but there's really 13 different uh, practices in these four Satipatthanas. And the Vedna, the feelings, come right in the middle. And particularly that, uh, the ethical quality, that unworldly Vedna, if you look under feelings, it's right in the center. And I, uh, I have been uh, uh, interested in this centeredness of this because in many of the old teaching styles, there is a whole setup and, of describing the problem and then a turning. There's a, it's kind of classic in, in Western, uh, the Western uh, old ancient teachings too. And at this point of realizing that Vedna is just Vedna, that's the start of the turning. We're not slaves to our animal instincts, to our nervous system, our animal nervous system that naturally would move towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. We are not captured by that. We have choice. By bringing mindfulness and intention, this compassionate mindfulness with intention, we have choice. We have choice of dispassion. We can stay with something that's unpleasant if there's if it's wholesome, if it's skillful means to do that towards a wholesome goal, and if it's if it's unskillful, we can see oh no to even though I like this, I won't stay with this. We can uh, we can get hungry for conversation on a retreat, and we want that kind of animal contact with another animal, right? And we go oh no, that's not skillful, and we can we have the the renunciation capacity to do that. And we, and we choose to do that because it's ethical, because we are more interested in our spiritual development than satisfying the immediacy of the animal body. The animal body is very immediate in nature. We've been with, we've watched the body, we can feel that. And right here is these tur- two turning points. We've learned renunciation in the whole thing, and then this, this that it's true that each of us, with all of our limitations, can choose the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And the Buddha never makes a big deal out of it. But just, he's just bringing us right along. And in that moment and in that way, he has prepared us to now turn to contemplating mind states. We are equipped. We are empowered. We've got, you know, we're in shape. We've got skillful means that we have just implicitly uh, uh, developed 
to prepare us for mind states, which are, as I've said earlier, more subtle and, and uh, often more, more difficult to locate. In, uh, in the, the, the uh, contemplation of mind, the Buddha says, in this way, in regard to the mind, she abides contemplating the mind internally. I'm sorry, starting in the wrong place. And how, monks and nuns, does she, in regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind? Here she knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. She knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. He knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. She knows a great mind to be great, and a narrow mind to be narrow. She knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable, and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. He knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated, and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. She knows a liberated mind to be liberated, and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. In this way, they regard to the mind, in this way, in regard to the mind, they abide contemplating the mind internally and externally, internally and externally. They abide contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. Mindfulness that there is a mind is established in they to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and they abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how, in regard to the mind, they abide contemplating the mind. Basically, and again, you'll hear much more about this tomorrow night, the mind, the mind is regarded into ordinary mind states, which, such as this lustful or mind of wanting, of anger or aversive mind, and deluded mind or distracted mind, contracted mind in these ways, or these minds which are uh, uh, more refined mind states of various levels, which we will go into tomorrow night. So this, this, is, this is the basic structure of contemplating mind. We just notice what's going on in our mind. You would think that we would do that pretty easily. But just watch. <laughs> we don't necessarily do that so easily. We get lost in content of mind. So we don't notice this phenomena of what's there. Anger is anger. It might be angry at something that someone did to us, that somebody's done to someone else, that we're angry because we stubbed our toe, we're in a bad mood. It's all anger. It's all anger. It's just anger. Just like it's just, the unpleasant is just unpleasant, pleasant's just pleasant. Anger is just anger. It's a phenomena of mind. It's a mind state, this anger. It's all it is. But we we get into the soap opera of why we're angry. And so we, we're way into it. We're not, we're not resting in the knowing. We're, we're, being, we're being swept along in the soap opera. And so this becomes uh, a, a yet a skillful means that we utilize everything we learned about being with the body. 
so that we just in the same way we're with the body, we have a, and around, around the Vedana and all, we have a dispassion. So it's, if it's a pleasant mind state, we, we have a dispassion. We, it's just pleasant so we can see, oh, this wanting mind is like this. Oh, this angry mind's like this. This is the way it is. This is the way angry mind is. It's dispassionate. We're knowing it as, we're knowing the experience itself, not the narrative, not the soap opera. Do you see that difference? It's, it's such a key difference. And we all know this in a sort of conceptual, vague way maybe, but to actually practice it requires some degree of intention. Yes, I really want to notice the actual phenomena of mind, the state of mind, and not the narrative of mind, not which soap opera I'm involved in in this moment. There's another um, brilliant, I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say this, but brilliance in this teaching of the mind states. He asked that we notice, as I read in, in the and in the sutta itself, he asks us to notice the presence or absence of both each of the ordinary mind states and of these higher mind states. Is it present or absent? This is often uh, sort of uh, skipped through a bit when, when we're teaching this. This, to me, is really important because I did not automatically notice the absence of anger. If there was no anger, then that was great that there was no anger. It never occurred to me on my own to contemplate the mind is without anger. Because I was oriented towards the wholesome mind state, right? So I, if there was a wholesome mind state, that's what I focused on. But that's actually only half the instruction. If the mind is in a wholesome mind state, we're to notice that. But if there's an absence, we're to notice it. Likewise, if the mind's in an unwholesome mind state, you know, we, we notice. So it's, we're noticing the presence of absence of, of, of both ordinary and these higher mind states. Not in a fixing way, not in thinking we're supposed to make it happen, but we're noticing what's present in such a way that then the Dharma can do us. We're available because we know how it is. We're being this mindfulness that's being present here and now. That, that the, the seeing itself, the vipassana, will bring us through. It carries us if we're, if we're able to be present. And we again, because of everything that we've done, we've got some momentum. We've got some skill sets. So I, I, I say this over and over again because... For you to um, consider and say, is this true? Do I have some skill sets? Do I have some confidence? Could I notice the presence or absence of anger? So, yes, I'm, I'm really with the breath, and it's um, this, oh, I really feel the mind's calm. Oh, there is no anger here. There is no lust. The absence of anger feels like this. The absence of lust feels like this. The absence of a distracted mind feels like this. Do you see how that would tie back into this unworldly orientation? We are noticing, even in ordinary mind states, when, when there is there's an absence of, of, these, of these things that lead to suffering. So we, we, we are knowing for ourselves and knowing that we know the, the, the wholesome feeling of a mind without anger. 
a mind without lust. We know for ourselves. This is our mind moving around and wherever we are. We know. We know. And we know we know. Oh, I know. I know what a mind without anger is. I know what my mind without anger is. Going back to this earth element and the groundedness. This is very, very subtle. It's been part of my practice. Being, you can find the ground in a mind without anger. You can become grounded in that moment of recognizing the mind is without anger. Here, now, a mind without anger. The purification, the recognition of the purification, the availability of the next moment being from the seed of the, a mind without anger is like this. It's, it's forward leading, at least in my experience. The other examples as I was going through about Anicca and of seeing Anicca in the wind element, which prepares you to see the Anicca, the ever-changing nature of pleasant and unpleasant. Therefore, you, d- you learn not to try to grasp hold of it because it's going to change anyway, thus dispassion, thus being able to practice with mind states. All of those principles that you've learned in being with the body in that way, whether conscious or unconscious, they are available as we are, as we are working with, with these mind states in that way. So it's all available there in that way. It's all, he, he has built this incredible structure, this, uh, call it a diamond-like structure, call it a pearl, whatever language you want to use in, in your way, but this, this structure that all along we're building the structure. And of course, because we go through it over and over and over again, uh, we, we, we're, we're, we're continuing to refine each little piece of the structure. So you may have heard something tonight you've not heard before. You'll contemplate it. And, mm, I, I, I'm not interested in that. Or go, oh, or maybe three years from now, you go, oh, that's what that guy meant. You know, about, oh, that's really true. No hurry. I mean, we don't have anywhere to go. We're going to be practicing for the rest of our lives, right? So, what's the hurry? So, this, 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 this capacity, this inner structure, this inner capacity, structure of capacity, however to say that, is, is occurring. Going once again to the chair. Humility. It is very hard to learn when we think we know. And one problem with our having experience, and all of you have had some experience, some of you a fair amount, and some of you a lot of experience, we can lose, don't know mine, beginner's mind. 
Uh, T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets says, uh, don't let me hear about the, 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 the wisdom of old men, but, uh, but of their humility, for humility is endless. And so it is. So it is. And so there, there's... Um, uh, every day, every sit, every moment is a new opportunity to learn. We're not always going to remember that. I certainly don't. But I do cultivate remembering this, this remembering aspect of mindfulness. That, yeah, beginner's mind, don't know mind. What's this like? My relationship to the Satipatthana is so intimate. It is so intimate. Maybe you've been able to feel that in the way I've talked about it tonight. It is so intimate because of this don't know mine. I just, I'm always getting to experience it afresh. And including this retreat, I've, I've heard things tonight, over these nights of, 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 of my colleagues speaking that, oh, I like that. And it's, it's fresh. One one of the one of the little stories is the the scholar who who comes who's who's taught and who's taught uh, meditation and all but never actually practiced and by the way there were periods of time when practice was looked down on scholars were considered the the ones who really understood all of these teachings and that practice stuff was secondary I mean for long periods of time through the centuries this has been true so and that's a little aside um, the, so the um, uh, this scholar comes to the mountain where the, the the master is, and says, "You know, I've been to, I've been at university all this time teaching, and I thought I should I should do a little practice. So I thought I'd come here and practice with you, and just just have have you teach me some things." And the master goes, "Oh, would you like some tea?" And the, he was kind of there to start being learned. He said, "Well, yes, that would be nice. I'd like some tea." So the master fixes some tea, gives him a cup. And he starts pouring the tea. And he pours and he pours and it gets to the brim and it starts running over. And it starts running down his hand. And, and the scholar is going, I wonder if he's getting a little demented. And he says, do you realize, do you realize that, that this, this cup is full and it can't take any more tea? And the master goes, just so. When your mind is full, it can't receive any learning. I'd like to end with a little poem here. And we're still in chair territory with this poem. It's called Look Around by Mark Nepo. If you try to comprehend air before breathing it, you will die. We're talking about direct experience here, right? (laughs) If you try to understand love before being held, you will never feel compassion. If you insist on bringing God to others before opening your very small window of life, you will never have honest friends. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay, you will lose your ability to try.
No matter what anyone promises, to never feel compassion, to never have honest friends, to lose your ability to try, these are desperate ways to die. A dog loves the world through its nose, a fish through its gills, a bat through its deep sense of blindness, an eagle through its glide, and a human life through its spirit. Just as we have to arrive, our A in our chair, we also then need to stay before we leave. As we move to mind states, it ain't so easy to stay. (laughs) There's a lot of neighborhoods we don't want to be in, so we want to get out of there. We want to go to fantasy or start telling our story to ourselves around this emotion or... Uh, do something else, we don't want to stay. We don't want to stay. What's the response? Compassion. That's this compassionate mindfulness. Without the compassion, we're a lot less likely to stay. We won't stay with the body even when it's hurting. We move away from the body. We start complaining about it or we go to fantasy or something. We don't just stay, oh, the body hurting is like this. Unpleasantness of body is like this. We don't stay long enough with unpleasantness of body to see its, its, uh, its changing nature, to see that it's just, it's just body pain. It's just discomfort. It, it, we, we have to stay long enough to know how it is. We have to arrive, and we have to stay long enough to know. Now, fortunately, we get to visit time and again. But we can can just touch in for a long time and without a deliberateness, not stay. Not stay. So learning to stay. Learning to stay with how it is so that we can know how it is. Know how things are through all the sense gates, and know ourselves, know this true nature, this Buddha nature, this, this bodhicitta, all of these different ways of saying this, knowing, knowing that which, which is the end of the world for ourselves. It requires that we stay. And yes, there's courage to stay. Kuer, the heart. There's, there's heart, there's courage in staying. There's so much humility. There's so much humility. Because we, we don't, we, you know, we, we get into judging and we get into comparing and we're going, I'm not good enough. That's that kind of fixing thing. I don't mean, I'll talk about that tomorrow, about the fixing, but uh, we, we get into our judging and comparing and, and, and so we don't stay with the actual experience. We're in our reactive mind state to the experience. Even though it would appear as though we're with the experience, we're actually in our views and opinion about the experience, not in the experience itself. If we're going to go to our views and opinions, then what, we, what I would suggest might be more skillful is go, oh, now I'm being with my views and opinion about this experience. I'm no longer with the body pain. I'm going, oh, well, this shouldn't be here if I didn't have this, as, as someone used the other day as an example. So now we're in our views and our opinions. So then what's, being with the, what's a view and opinion feel like? What is view and opinion? What is my reactive mind? We're in the mind state, you see. We're not in the experience of the body itself at this point. Again, very subtle here, but we're interested. We're just interested. We don't know. Final thing. 
Courage, yes. Humility, yes. And those two combined yield dignity and authenticity. When we stay rather than leave, when we're mindful in this moment without having to do anything else, even though we have, we, the moment may be a stormy moment, if we're there with it, there is a sense of authenticity in our experience. It feels authentic to ourselves. And if you do this with this mindfulness over a period of time, I have seen this without fail. More and more, there starts to be this kind of mysterious, where does it come from, lotus opening of a feeling of dignity. Innate dignity. Not dignity because of any stripes on our shoulder, titles, or or any skill sets. But innate dignity that is part of our birthright. This innate dignity of this this mind-heart. It's innately dignity. Dignified, there is dignity. Offer these words and these these reflections for your benefit. Uh, take what is useful and please disregard the rest of them. <laughs> Close our eyes for a moment, letting the words go, and just what is the feeling? What is the direct experience in this moment? Thank you so much for your kind attention. Uh, uh, at the nine o'clock sit, Greg will once again be leading the chant at the, at the, towards the end of the sit. For those of you who are, have yoga.